If I'm to offer thoughts on responsibility, I think of figures in my life who were truly responsible in the face of challenging times. I think of in 2016 when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, which was the reason for my loss of vision. How my grandfather, John Brennan, for whom I am named, offered me wisdom before a tabernacle in a Catholic church in Lower New York. I lost my eyesight at age six, but the tumor was the undiagnosed cause. We had just learned this. Many gave advice like it would be all right, it will be okay. All things would eventually work out together for good. And I'm not saying that these things weren't helpful. I'm not saying that they weren't comforting. But they had become kind of rehearsed at this point. In his wisdom, my grandfather, John Brennan, sat down with me. Before the red sanctuary lamp and before the icons of the Pieta and the stations of the cross on the walls, he explained them to me visually. I had used to seeing them before I had lost my eyesight because he knew that I loved to hear the description of any iconographic depictions of the life of our Lord. As I record this, I'm actually in my room here filled with Orthodox and uh, Western icons of the life of Christ as well. And so after he did this, he said, well, John, I know it will be a hard road. I know that it will be a tough road. It will be filled with pain. This will be a difficult journey. But we are to place all of our cares, all of our anxieties, all of our thoughts and concerns into the hands of the pierced one, the crucified one. Our God is a God who understands us because our God is a God who died, a God who suffered, and a God who bled. The way he said this, I cannot communicate the contextualization of it, but explain to me the mystery of suffering in a way that I intellectually knew in my mind but I had not yet, as of that point, experienced in my heart. It was walking alongside my suffering that he was doing. It was accompanying me, listening to how our heart, mine and his, were being opened before the sacred heart, the pierced heart of Jesus Christ. And it was that sense that wasn't authoritarian, wasn't rescuing as defined in our psychological textbook that we had to read for class, not abandonment either. But it was like Christ being aided by Simon on the Via Della Rosa. And I will never forget it. Now, examples from class. I would argue fundamentally that the poem of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I expressed later on as well, was quite moving to me eucharistically. We speak of Jesus hanging dead upon the cross for the unbeliever and the believer alike and both are sanctified. That God is the God whom we console in his suffering. Uh, I will offer further thoughts later upon the similar theme. But for me, this is the very heart and crux, the cross, by which we are to measure our role as the hands and feet of God on the earth. Too often, I wonder whether the institutional church gets caught up in concerns of wanting to play the rescuer, wanting to play the savior. Whether it is in the political or social arena, 
and conservative or progressive causes. And maybe, just maybe, we institutionally need to take a huge step back, and individually, pastorally, a massive step back, and listen for where the voice of those hurting individuals are around us. And to hear in them the voice of Christ, and then to be engaged, then to interact, then to intervene, as we learned in our readings this week, to intervene from an authentic place of wanting to aid Christ in our neighbor. Now, I gave some big didactic sweeping terms there, and I am aware of many wonderful agencies that are involved in social justice and other concerns with a sincere concern for aiding others. But too often uh, from the pulpit, I have heard platitudes preached, slogans offered, while people are on, on a road which requires accompaniment and not merely a series of sermons. So I was truly impactfully moved, greatly moved, by Bonhoeffer's poem and by our class's mutual discussion shortly afterwards of the way in which one could ask, what may I do for you? What can I do for you? As we discussed in the phraseology in our class discussion, uh, rather than um, a point of, well, you know, this is the plan, this is what we are to do, this is how we're to carry it out. It reminds me of the way in which our words reflect our authentic or inauthentic responsibility. And it gives me a measure of how important our words are in relationship to the accompaniment and the way in which we are to measure that accompaniment. I found during the pandemic, when I led several online Bible studies, that many were profoundly concerned that because they had no liturgy to attend in person, the communities would, would die out. And to reassure people by listening before opening my Irish mouth over here, and to just authentically soak in what they were saying, uh, meant so much more to them than had I started quote, quoting Romans 8, 28, you know, all things work together for good, etc. Because I wanted to embody in that time what my grandfather, John, had embodied for me. And that openness of laying our crosses sincerely at the foot of Christ. Dr. Swain, I found your work in Cairo, the chapter on responsibility, to be so rich that I've been meditating on it uh, for some time, in the sense that the, the opening salvo, uh, the idea of us seeing God in the vulnerable, uh, in a very Matthew chapter 25 sense, whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters, you did also unto me, that this idea um, is profoundly compelling and interesting to me. On theological grounds, first, I'd like to point out that beautiful poem that you began the chapter with, that both the Christian and the pagan come to God in the hungering, in the thirsting, in those who are vulnerable, and those who are in need. And in some sense, we console God. And that might seem like an offensive statement to some in the world who might say, but God is omniscient, God is all-powerful, God is up there and we are down here. But as Christians, theologically, we believe in the incarnation and the paschal mystery. We believe that God on the cross is found in his 
thirst and in his hunger. And in Matthew chapter 25, there seems to be even an illusion of God's nakedness on the cross and the sense of God's duress. And therefore, when I, and maybe this is because we are recording this around Holy Week coming very soon, at least I'm recording this around Lent right now, preparing for Holy Week, I should say, um, as I meditate upon the Anglican, Catholic, and Orthodox tradition of uh, the Stations of the Cross or the Liturgy of Good Friday, what I find interesting is the idea of those who accompany and console God in that narrative. It's not something directly contained in, in your chapter, but it's something I find highly relevant. Who comes to the aid of Jesus as he, in the traditional uh, Western Catholic account, falls at least three times uh, on his way to Golgotha? I'm aware it's not contained in Scripture, but it's a beautiful meditation nonetheless, the stations. Well, it's uh, this otherwise unknown uh, character of Veronica who wipes Jesus' face with a veil, uh, who presses through the crowd, presses through Roman centurions to console God in her neighbor, simply to wipe his face. In another sense, we see Simon the Cyrenian who is compelled, compelled by the Roman occupying powers to help carry the cross of Jesus. And in doing so, according to you know, the, the traditions that come down from the greater Western tradition, uh, what began as um, a process of endurance and pain becomes revelatory, that the one he is helping actually is more than a, a criminal, but actually the, the divine Lord. And then, of course, there is the holy women of Jerusalem who, according to the account, come to uh, console Jesus, and Jesus ends up coming to console them. So why do I mention this? Because it's, it's not contained directly in your chapter. Um, I find that that opening poem about us consoling God is a very real activity at the heart of authentic spiritual responsibility. And it's valid whether we are confronted um, in a situa situation where we must minister to a Christian or a non-Christian, uh, to a believer or to an atheist. It doesn't matter because when we come across someone who is in need, when we come across someone who is sick or infirm, in some sense, uh, I find that our responsibility, as you beautifully point out in the chapter, uh, isn't on one hand to have a savior or rescuer's complex where we try to come in and we try in a self-gratifying way to uh, fix everything. Uh, too often that's an impossible vision to possess. And also, it's a very harmful vision to possess. Think of the example that I just gave from the Stations of the Cross. Neither Veronica, nor the Holy Women, nor Simon the Cyrenian, uh, nor John the Apostle and his mom, uh, well, uh, Christ's mother, um, none of them try to get Christ away from the cross. 
Instead, they accompany, they accompany our Lord in his suffering. And they accompany according to their spiritual charism or according to their spiritual gift. And this reminds me of the opposites warning that you gave or um, loving admonition, let's put it that way, uh, away from abandonment in our responsibility. Because ultimately, we are responsible for thinking of the whole, uh, we are in Lent preparing for Holy Week. Uh, we must not do what the apostles did, which is say it's too hard and we just walk away. That is also not accurately reflecting our own responsibility. So that responsibility idea is, in some sense, being aware of one's role of accompaniment. And I find that idea is beautifully illustrated by your chapter and something that I, I've obviously, as you've just heard, assimilated into my own uh, theological background in Roman Catholicism and in my newfound home in the ELCA, which I have loved very, very much and continue to, continue to do so towards a word and sacrament ministry. Um, I would also add that there are two more examples from your reading, your chapter, which I found highly applicable. The second example was found in the psychological development of child and mother, where there's a differentiation that happens between the uh, child and a growing sense of concern and the awareness that this child in his or her own identity is other than that of the mother. And in doing so, uh, the child begins to uh, wrestle with the complex needs of wanting and desiring, and almost, I think you described it as an objectifying thirst, uh, versus an understanding of the environmental mother who aids and nurtures and supports them. Now, I, I will freely admit I am a little skeptical of psychoanalytic uh, interpretations of, de of development and personality, but... Um, I will say that's a very fascinating example of mother and child. Once again, thinking of, uh, on one hand, I'm thinking of what a, a repressive rescuer or savior's complex in a ministerial position. What, what would that look like? And I would say, um, at least it would resemble in my mind, maybe this is the geek version of me or the nerd version of me, The Matrix. Uh, the movie The Matrix, obviously, it depicts these characters in a digital simulation who are being um, harvested by this computer program for its own goods. And the word matrix actually from the Latin obviously refers to womb. So there's a kind of inversion of what should be the environmental image of nurturing or support uh, becomes a kind of uh, narcissistic uh, authoritarian source of control and manipulation. And that's, as you pointed out in your chapter, that's a very real problem and an abuse of, of pastoral authority. And I've personally seen this in parishes that have suffered because of um, that kind of a misreading of the role of the priest or of the uh, elder in the church situation. At the same time, I'm thinking, well, in this mother and child image, what would the opposite sense of abandonment, what would that look like in terms of an, an idea of responsibility? Well, you don't mention it in the chapter, and I know I'm going far afield here with my own interpretive commentary, but 
this fascinating idea in my mind that I forget when the experiment was done, and it would never be done today because of uh, deep psychological concerns for developmental issues. But when a child does not receive physical touch from their their mother or any parental figure, when a child is not held, when a child has no nurturing, we know that there are severe psychological and physiological effects on the development of that child. That child does not develop a sense of authentic empathy, etc., from what I, I gather from memory. So why is that interesting? Because, you know, we cannot have so heavy of a, I'm going to use the, the you know, the way too economic image of hands-on or hands-off forms of uh, government here um, and of finance for a moment. But on a broader theological point of view, we don't want to try and enter the room with our own vision of what the healing process should be for the one we are ministering to. to the point where our vision prevents us from hearing God in our neighbor and in ourselves speak. Neither do we want to utterly uh, forego any process of accompaniment and to leave our neighbor on the cross uh, without ever having walked with them, without ever having listened to them, without ever having heard them. So I, I'm aware that you didn't directly address the, those exact uh, examples I gave in the mother and child metaphor, but I just ran with it because it's such a beautiful psychological and spiritual archetype. I was even thinking of the Madonna and child as a kind of the, the perfect icon of loving self-sacrifice in the image of the Pieta. And what would that image of the Pieta, uh, Mary cradling now the, uh, the broken body of our Lord on her lap, what does that tell us um, about essentially, dare I say, a Marian role of responsibility in ministerial work. Now, obviously, any image can be hijacked and uh, misapplied, of course, so I want to be cautious about this. But I, I do think, and maybe this is a bit from my theological background um, talking here, but I do think that the, in that kind of accompaniment, even to the radical solidarity uh, of um, of the heart of what appears to be death is something which I, I find quite evocative and at least interesting. The, the last point I found very, uh, very brilliant about your chapter, Dr. Swain, which I, I've been meditating on as well, and as you can tell, adding my own kind of commentary or, or uh, gloss to it, was uh, the example that you gave of, uh, I believe it was the ministerial student, uh, Rachel, if memory serves me, who realizes the moment she confronted uh, her own sense of an overly bearing form of uh, pastoral responsibility, when she confronted that in herself, then she was liberated uh, more and more uh, to be a more accompanying power as um, a responsible minister of Christ and wielding responsibility uh, with love. And I do find the idea of self-confronting uh, very beautiful, once again, in this Lenten season, in this Lenten process. 
And it is something which um, I find as we continue our journey together uh, allows us to really discover what it means to uh, the English word is repent, but really have metanoia or renewal. And it deeply allowed me to reflect upon um, the ways in which that discernment process, um, almost the penitential rite at the beginning of some of our liturgies, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, uh, is actually um, a, a mutual participation and looking at our soul in the mirror of God's divine love and God's divine justice too. All right, I hope that's been helpful for, for a degree and uh, look forward to class.